As I said, this is the account of Stephen, the first martyr. Um, Just before we get into this, uh, the word martyr very often is uh, considered a word that has to do with a person who dies for their faith. Um, This is fine, this is how the word has come to be used, but the word literally means a witness. Uh, A martyr would be the same person who would come take the stand in a court of law. That's a martyr, a witness. And so in this sense, Stephen is not really the first martyr. There have been many martyrs, many witnesses of the gospel and of Jesus Christ before Stephen. But Stephen is the first one that we have in the scriptures who loses his life for the sake of the gospel. So I'll finish reading the text for us, picking up at Acts 7.54, and go into chapter 8, and then we'll study the whole of the text. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. This is God's word. So obviously this is a big, long text and took a long time to read, but you need to really have the whole of the text in front of you to understand the main points. The main points are really concentrated in that last part of the text that we read, and so that's why I picked to read it right before the sermon. Um, But you do kind of need to know everything that Stephen has said up to this point and been doing in order to understand what this text has to teach us. And so we're going to organize the thoughts of this text into three categories. You can see them on your notes sheet if you're taking notes along with us. They are the Sanhedrin, Stephen, and Saul. And really what you could break these three points down into is the problem, the solution, and the effects or the results. Okay, so these are the three points. You can follow along with the notes there if you would like. So let's start with the Sanhedrin. This is the problem of this text. Uh, The text starts here by saying that when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So what is the this that they heard and we're so angry about. Well, I asked you, as I was reading the first part of the text, to ask yourself, what is the main point of Stephen's sermon? And you might have come up with any number of answers. Let's see how close your answer was to my answer. Stephen's main point is, you always resist God's word. Or maybe you might have had, you always resist the prophets, or you always persecute the prophets. It's all about the same point. Stephen goes by example by example, showing how the Israelites constantly resist those whom God sends to them with his word. He starts with Joseph, right? And says how Joseph came to his brothers and said, I had this dream about these stalks of wheat and how they all bowed down and the sun, moon, and stars and they don't listen to him, right? 
It takes a a disaster, a famine in the land for Jacob's sons to actually listen to Joseph, whom God had given his word to. And then he moves on to Moses. He says, remember Moses, when he was 40 years old, he tried to deliver you from Egypt by stopping the Egyptians from beating you up, but you didn't listen to him. In fact, you told him to get lost, and he went gone for 40 years out in Midian until an absolute disaster, the killing of your children, brought him back by God's deliverance in order to take you out, and 10 plagues had to be done in order for you to listen to him. So you finally got out of Egypt. But don't worry, it gets worse. Once you're out in Egypt, you don't listen to him anyways, right? You set up a golden calf and worship the calf rather than listen to Moses, God's prophet. Oh, and don't even get me started on the tabernacle. You had the tabernacle, you had a place to worship God, and God told you, I don't need a place to worship, and yet David tried to start a temple, but God said, no, wait till Solomon. And now you all think the temple is the centerpiece of your worship life. You think the temple is the most important thing. You're not even listening to God. And he sums it up with these two statements at the end of his sermon. You heard it, right? He says, you always persecute the prophets. Was there not a prophet that your ancestors didn't persecute? And now you, you killed the righteous one, the prophet, the final prophet. You killed him because you always resist God's word. And then he he finally says, as he finishes his sermon, look, I see heaven opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And this does him in. They take him, they drag him outside and they stone him. They can't stand it. Why do you think they did that? Why such an extreme reaction to this sermon of Stephen? Well, my sense of it is that the Sanhedrin's problem is they have divine authority issues. Just like their ancestors had divine authority issues, they didn't want to listen to God when God sent his prophets to tell them what they are to believe or to do or to say. They too have divine authority issues. They, They did not want to listen to what God had to say about them, namely that they would need to repent. They wanted to live their life their own way, and they wanted God to get on board with it. They wanted to set the agenda. They wanted to put the plan in place instead of listening to what God had for them to do and to say. They had divine authority issues. And when they were confronted with the fact that God was actually so much in authority in Jesus that he is standing at the right hand of the throne of God in a position of what you might call the prime minister of a monarchy where he is able to exact his justice and his rule over all people, they can't stand it. This Jesus that we killed, you're telling me he's the ultimate authority? No way. And so they kill him. But I think there's something maybe foundational in this that we need to examine in our own hearts. Because even though none of us in this room have killed a prophet by stoning him, and if you have, please don't raise your hand, we all have the same kind of divine authority issues happening in our heart. I think this isn't just the Sanhedrin's problem. I think this is our problem at some level. We don't really like the idea that God would be in charge, that God would set the agenda, that God would call the shots, or God would put in place plans for our life that we would have to repent of our desires and our wants and our plans and say, not my will, but yours be done. Let me give you a couple examples of how this this might happen. And one of the things that that I get to do as a Christian in the world is talk to non-Christians about Jesus. And maybe you get the opportunity to as well. One thing I find with folks who are thinking about whether or not Christianity might be for them is that they very often have divine authority issues. 
When it comes to the Bible, they're really pretty okay with this idea that Jesus is a savior, that Jesus loves me, that Jesus forgives me, that Jesus wants to provide for me and care for me. They're pretty okay with that idea. It becomes a problem when Jesus says, now you also have to accept me as Lord, not just as savior. That when I say something, it goes, and you don't get to argue with it. And this might manifest in any number of ways. Might be, well, I don't like those specific commands of the Bible, or maybe it would be even more foundational than that. I, I like Jesus, I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure the Bible is actually true, despite the fact that accepting Jesus as the authority means the Bible must necessarily be true and God's word because Jesus says it is. It's divine authority issues. And so very often, it's not that they don't understand the gospel, it's that they don't want God to be in charge. But this happens in the church as well. I'll find this with people who come to our congregation and maybe are Christians. They believe in Jesus. They love Jesus. They follow Jesus. But, but they don't really want to have divine authority over them in a congregation. So this can show up in a number of different ways. They, they might want what I call a, a friends with benefits church membership. Do you understand the concept of friends with benefits? It's a terrible thing that people do sometimes where they're, they're friends, but they will have a sexual relationship that has nothing to do with them dating. They want all the benefits of an intimate relationship without commitment of an intimate relationship. This is common. We might call it spiritual, but not religious. I like church as long as I can consume it the way that I want to, but I'm not going to commit. I'm not going to hold myself accountable. I'm not going to be vulnerable to other people. I just want to come and I want to consume divine authority issues. Or maybe it's specifically about the pastor or a leadership person in a congregation. I like kind of being here with these other folks, but I don't want anyone to step into my life and say, this way that I'm living is not in line with God's word. Divine authority issues. It might also be for the people who are already here. You've committed to Cross of Life. This is your church home, but you don't like the idea of another human being holding you accountable. You like your relationship with God, that's cool, but as soon as another person steps into it, you're not cool with it. It may be when a pastor comes to you and asks you, where have you been? It's been a couple weeks since you've been in worship. Or it might be, how's your devotional life? Are you taking time for God every day? Or how about offerings? Do you give generously to the ministry of the gospel and to your neighbor? These things can ruffle our feathers a little bit because we don't want somebody stepping into our life and producing authority from God. And this, frankly, was the problem with the Sanhedrin, right? The, the prophets were the ones they resisted. It's not like God showed up and they were like, we're not going to listen to God. They didn't like Joseph or Moses or David. They didn't like the people that God sent. Now, as a quick tangent, I just want to say that as the pastor at Cross of Life, I don't find this to be the case very often with most of you. Like, I think the amount of respect that you show me as a pastor is wonderful, and I'm very thankful for that. I mean, some of you are twice my age or more than that, and you respect me as your pastor, and God be praised for that. That's really cool. It's not easy. But for all of us, let's ask ourselves, maybe it's not me, but maybe it's someone else in this room who comes into your life to speak truth. Do you respect the divine authority that comes not from them, but from God's word? Or maybe one last one, as we as a congregation start to think about how to encourage us to be accountable to biblical standards as members of our church, I'm a little bit apprehensive about that, honestly. I'm a little bit worried that if we implement these expectations and accountabilities for one another, that some of us will say, I'm done. I don't want a church that holds me accountable to things. I'm going to leave. I'll find another church. I hope that doesn't happen. 
But do you see, at, at its root, it's, it's divine authority issues. We don't want someone else to tell us what it means to be a Christian. We want Christianity on our own terms. But can I, can I go a step deeper with you on this? I don't think we have divine authority issues just because we're rebels without a cause. I think actually something deeper is happening in every one of our hearts. And I think you can actually see it in the text of Acts here. Uh, it tells us back in chapter 6 that those who were against Stephen produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. Now, a couple things to pick out of here. First of all, why would you ever produce false witnesses? Well, because a person's not actually doing something, but you know that if they were doing that thing, it would get everybody riled up. And so they produce these false witnesses who say this thing that Stephen is not actually doing, but they know will get the people riled up. And do you see what those two things are that get the people riled up? It's this place and changing the customs that Moses handed down to us. We've heard him say that he's going to destroy this place and change the customs. This place is the temple, the centerpiece of Jerusalem. They're going to take away the temple and they're going to change the customs. Do you hear this? What they loved more than the word of God was the building and their traditions. And if you've been in church long enough, you know that these kind of come to be sort of tropes about churches. We care a whole lot about our buildings and our traditions rather than God's word. It's interesting to apply this to Cross of Life because we've never owned our own building that we've worshipped in. And so maybe we don't have an obsession with the four walls that we're in right now. But I wonder, like as we think about what it means to have a more permanent home that's our own, are we going to obsess about the four walls and where they're located and what they look like? Or are we going to think about how do these four walls empower us to preach the word? Again, Cross of Life is not a congregation that has all that many traditions. We haven't been around all that long. And part of our ethos has kind of been, let's be a little bit different, and that's good. But we all have things we're comfortable with, things that we like the way that they are, and we would rather they don't change. Will we love those things, or we love God's word? Or it could be any number of other personal things, right? It doesn't have to be your building or your traditions. It could be something in your personal life, like a relationship that you know, like it's not really what God wants for you, but you're, you really want to be with somebody. Or you might want to lower your standards. Or you think about how you spend your time and you think, yeah, but if I want to have this kind of job, I need to put in these kind of hours. I don't have time for community with other Christians or a devotional life with my family, when it comes to your money, I know that God tells me to be generous, but if I want to live at the standard of living that I have right now, I can't be. It could be any number of things that you, you want more than God's word. The problem here, really, is that our divine authority issues come from the fact that we hold something other than God's sacred. We hold something in our life, or maybe multiple things, that are untouchable, that God doesn't get to have a say over. For the Sanhedrin, for the Jews, it was the temple and the traditions. What is it for you? What are the things or multiple things in your life that you really don't want God to touch? If I can give you a test maybe to help you on this. Um, think about the, the critical words or insults that really get you. Like they, they, like they don't just roll off your back, like they stick in your soul for like a day or a week or a year. You know those things? It's maybe the people who say something about how you look or how you raise your kids or how you spend your time or what you value. 
Maybe to give you a test, if I said about all of you, you're all terrible mothers. Some of you are not in the least bit offended by that because you're not even a woman, much less a mother. But some of you, if I really meant it, which I don't, you're all wonderful mothers. If I really meant it, that would break your heart because you hold that sacred. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a heavy investment in your children as mothers, but do we realize that some things are so close to our heart that if God were to say something about them that's contrary to what we're doing, we might have divine authority issues. See, we hold something sacred other than God. Every one of us does, and we need to repent of it and to hear what God has to say and to follow his word. If we don't, we end up like the Sanhedrin. Did you see how they reacted? When, when, when Stephen finished his sermon, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their lungs all rushed at him and dragged him out of the side of the city to stone him. I mean, I think it's easy for us to focus on the dragging him out, the, out of the city and stoning him part because that's the most dramatic. But I think it's interesting just to focus on the first part of this text. They covered their ears and were yelling at the top of their voices. What kind of behavior is this? It's the behavior of children. Right? This is what children do when they don't want to hear what is true. And I think the Bible is at least implying that when we have divine authority issues, when we don't want to hear what God is saying, we are spiritually immature. We are spiritual children. And now you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not that immature. Right? I might struggle with a thing here or there, but I'm not so immature to, to not listen to God's word. You know who thinks they're not immature? Usually the most immature people. Like how many of you have been a teenager and you thought you knew everything? I just heard this great Mark Twain quote this week. Uh, when I was 10, I thought my dad knew everything. When I was 20, I realized he knew nothing. And when I was 30, I was amazed at how much he'd learned. Right, that's how we all are. I was like that. I'm sure many of you were like that. Our authority figures are idiots. At least that's what we think. Until we realize that they're not, and I think the same thing happens with God. We think there's no way God knows. There's no way God understands. There's no way God gets me. And yet God calls us to repent of that and to look at him as our ultimate authority. So if this is us, which it is, let's repent. And then see the solution. The beautiful picture of the man, Stephen. I mean, Stephen is arguably the best dude in the Bible. Uh, this is the kind of guy you want in your congregation. This is the kind of guy you want your daughters to marry. This is the kind of guy who you want in positions of authority because he is fantastic. I mean, look at the text. We remember from last week that Stephen was one of the guys who the apostles put in charge of distributing the food to the Jewish widows or Hellenistic Jewish widows. Remember this? He was a guy of deep compassion, a man who loved those who were poor and outcast and those who were unloved. He was one who went out of his way to be compassionate and patient with people. And we found out at the beginning of this text back in chapter six that he was intelligent. He would actually go and argue the faith with people who had differing opinions from him. And he was bold. I mean, honestly, how many of us could preach the same sermon that Stephen preached? I know it'd be tough for me. I mean, imagine it would be tough for you. But he boldly proclaimed the truth of God's word. This is what the scripture says, law and gospel. This is the kind of guy you want. And by the way, while we're on the topic, this guy's not an apostle. He's a layman. Any one of you men could be like Stephen. How? Well, at the risk of, of sounding like some clickbait on the internet, he had this one weird trick 
that got him to be like this. He looked to Jesus. Do you see it in the text? Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He looked to Jesus. And it made him compassionate and it made him learned and wise and it made him bold. But do you notice what's, what's wrong about this text? Do you see it? That Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. I mean, only a few minutes ago, you confessed in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But here we see him standing. Why? Well, we get this in our culture too a little bit, although it's starting to pass away. When a guest of honor comes into a place, generally, we stand. When the bride walks in on her wedding day, we stand. When the judge walks into the courtroom, all rise. When the guest of honor comes to a party, we get up from the table. When the business person that we're trying to get to be our client walks into the room, we stand up and shake their hand. When the guest of honor comes in, we stand. And Jesus stands for Stephen. And this is what electrifies Stephen's heart. That he realizes that Jesus approves of him. No, Jesus desires to be with him. That God looks at Stephen and sees everything that he's ever wanted in a person, not because Stephen is perfect, but because Christ has died for Stephen. And that's what you have too. You have the certainty that Christ is excited to be in your presence. That Christ is eager to shake your hand and wrap his arms around you. That Christ desires to be with you because he accepts you and approves of you and loves you and forgives you and wants to promise you eternity with him. And brothers and sisters, if you have that and that sinks deep down into your soul, being like Stephen is the least you could do. Like if for a moment you could actually believe that, that Jesus fully accepts you, why would you worry if you were not accepted by people? Or if you could fully believe that Jesus loves you, why would you worry that you would not be loved by people? Or if Jesus stands in your presence why would you be worried that other people might not think very highly of you? I mean, if you believe this, if you look to Jesus and see this same Jesus that Stephen saw, you could be like Stephen. You could be compassionate, willing to give your time, your energy, your money for other people. Intelligent, wise, because you're listening to the word of this Savior, and bold, because you know that ultimately nothing can really touch you. But it gets better. Because when Stephen is dying and he's getting stoned, he starts to sound like Jesus. Did you notice it? In the text, he says, Lord, receive my spirit, and later, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sound familiar? Like the man on the cross who said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen started to sound like Jesus. And you can too simply by hearing the words that Jesus speaks. You know why I speak English? Because my parents speak English and have grown up in a mostly English-speaking country. You know why I have the accent that I have? Because I've lived around people who have this same accent. If I lived in the UK or I lived in Quebec, I might have a different accent or speak a different language, but I speak the way that I speak because I hear the people around me speak this way. Do you hear Jesus? Do you sound like Jesus? Do you have his accent, so to speak? Or is the way that you speak more influenced by the Daily Wire or CNN? Or by your favorite Twitter handle or TikTok 
producer? Is, is the language that you speak more influenced by what you listen to in your podcasts or by the word of God? Brothers and sisters, listening to the word of God regularly will not ultimately save you. Belief in Jesus does. What God is calling every one of us to do is to come into a deep relationship with Jesus where we look and sound like he does. And that starts by being here every Sunday to hear his word preached, being in your Bible every day to study what he has to say, being with other Christians in community in a life group, to hear other Christians express God's word to you so that you can start to hear it spoken out loud. All of these things will lead to you starting to sound like Jesus. But then the last thing that Stephen teaches us is, is not as fun, and that's that it didn't turn out that well. Right? I mean, not only does Stephen die, but the Bible tells us that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It was not a good day. I mean, imagine if for some reason someone got really offended by my sermon today and, and killed me and then systematically went to all your houses and tried to find you to arrest you. This would be bad for our mission reports. It'd be a bad day for our church. But for a second, I want you to compare this. This verse right here, Acts 8.1, to this verse earlier in the book of Acts that says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you remember this verse? From Peter's Sermon at Pentecost, where Peter just as boldly and just as clearly proclaimed God's word, a word in law and gospel. You killed the Lord of glory, he said, but Christ has been raised. The same message that Stephen preached, and yet a completely opposite result. On Pentecost, 3,000 were added to their number. On this day with Stephen, one was subtracted from their number. What should teach you something? That it's not really about getting the results. It's about being faithful to God's word. Sometimes you preach the word and it brings people to the church. And sometimes you preach the word and it drives people away from the church. Or if you're taking notes with us, you could fill in the blanks like this. We're called to be faithful, not fruitful. In other words, God isn't taking metrics. He isn't saying, how many people have you added to your congregation this week, this month, this year? He's asking, are you faithful to my word? I'll take care of the numbers. Sometimes it'll be 3,000. Sometimes it'll be negative one. But I ask you to be faithful to my word. And that's exactly what Stephen did in the same way Peter did, even though he got completely different results. Now, before we move on from this point, I do want to say there is some good news in this. This means the pressure's off, right? But just speak the word. Just love the word. Just be with Jesus. And whether you're a success by worldly standards or an absolute failure, God does not care. You're free. Everywhere else in your life has metrics and expectations that you need to live up to if you want to be accepted, not the church of Christ. Christ accepts you because of what he has done, not because of what you do. The pressure is off. You're free to live extravagantly generously to the people around you and to your community. You're free to preach the word with absolutely no fear because if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, he who did not spare his own son and yet gave him up for us all, how could he not also give us all things along with him? You're free. So then let's move to Saul. The results of this kind of love and boldness with the word. Luke tells us about this new character that he introduces that he's obviously going to spend much of the rest of the book of Acts exposing for us, but he simply names him right here at the beginning. 
He says, while this was happening, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, and Saul approved of their killing him. The Bible doesn't say that Saul was converted on that day. It took a few more weeks and months before Jesus showed up to Saul on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But I wonder if this moment didn't stick with Saul. As he stood there with the cloaks, hearing the cries of the man who was dying, I wonder if it seeped down deep into his soul, and although he did not understand what was happening to him, it came back to him later. That this is the kind of boldness of people who believe in a man who comes back from the dead. Brothers and sisters, you believe in this man, and it has enlivened your heart to leave your life of sin and pursue a life of righteousness because you know what Jesus has done. It didn't happen for Saul in that moment, but it did eventually, and you know the rest of the story. Saul became the greatest church planter and evangelist the world has arguably ever seen. He planted churches across the Mediterranean world. This can happen. Maybe not right now, just like it didn't happen right then, but in the future. See, the problem for many of us as North Americans, maybe it's because we have phones which are so programmed to get us to think in the, in the moment right now, but we have trouble thinking past the end of our own life, like building something for the future, for our kids and grandkids, for 100 years from now. But that's how the church thinks. We think about what it means to build for the future, to do what is right and faithful now, even though it might not get immediate results, but brings results in the future. Maybe to show you this in a textual way, look at Acts verse eight, or chapter eight, verse one. It says that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which sounds like a bad thing until you realize that Acts 8.1 is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. That Jesus said, before he ascended into heaven, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. It took a persecution, the death of a Christian, to get God's people out, to share the gospel with the places around them. And you saw what happened when Philip went on his way to preach the gospel. Joy met those congregations. What if the suffering we are experiencing because of the word and our faithful preaching of it right now is causing something beautiful in the future that maybe none of us will be here to see? Only God knows. But he hasn't called us to be fruitful. He's called us to be faithful. To say it differently... I found this quote on, uh, on somebody's refrigerator when I was on my vacation uh, two weeks ago now. It's a quote from Cheng Su, who's a Taoist philosopher. He said, just when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it turned into a butterfly. And we're all supposed to be like, aw, there's good in the world, and there's always a silver lining. <laughs> can I be honest with you and kind of blunt? Only Christians can believe this. Taoists can't believe this. Not really, not objectively. They can't say that every single time evil happens, good comes out of it. But you can. Because you believe in a man who died, and that was the best thing that ever happened. Your religion is based on the idea that good comes out of evil, that life comes out of death. And so if what we do together as a congregation boldly proclaiming God's word makes things tough for us now, we know with certainty that God is going to make it good. If you want to fill in a blank to make this point, you can do that like this. We live for not in the present results. We're looking for something that is eternal, or at least in the future. We're living for something bigger than ourselves. And frankly, isn't that more interesting and more invigorating than just living for yourself? 
Stephen teaches us something really important. That faithfulness is more important than fruitfulness. And that knowing the Christ who stands to welcome us into his presence is the only thing that will cause this to happen among us. So fix your eyes on Jesus and get to work. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing yourself to Stephen and to us to give us a reason to get up out of bed in the morning and live for you. We ask that the difficult things that we're going through, whether they're caused by our proclamation of the word or not, that you would give us peace in those moments that goes beyond understanding. That you would keep your promise to make all things work out for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place and into our communities, that the gospel may spread. And whether it be 3,000 who are added to our number or whether we decline, keep us faithful to your word. We ask those things in your name. Amen.